Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Well, we have something very, very special tonight. We're continuing on with the theme of what is happening in Israel. And I am so honored to have Daniel Flesh on with us tonight. I first met Daniel back in 2017, I think, perhaps 2018. Uh, he was a senior advisor to the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. So on a number of things we were doing at the UN in New York City at the time, we got acquainted with him. He was a wonderful friend. We were together later, other places, Florida and some other places. And so I'm going to have him, first of all, just take the first couple minutes, talk about his who he is in life. I've already dis- discussed some of it. Uh, but then also uh, he has his finger right on the pulse of where we are in in Israel and this war, difficult, very difficult war, perhaps one of the most com- because of the hostage situation, one of the most complex ever. And so I'm going to Daniel talk about that immediately. What's happening in Gaza and what's happening on the northern borders uh, with Hezbollah? So Daniel Flesh, what a joy! What a, what a joy to have you on tonight. And so take the first minute or two and talk about who you are a little bit more than what I've covered, and then let's jump into that topic, Daniel. Well, thank you, Jim and Rosemary. I appreciate you both for inviting me this evening. It's wonderful to be with this group uh, and to lend my voice to uh, helping your cause as well. Uh, so as Jim mentioned, yes, we mentioned we met a few years ago, 2018, 2019, at the UN. Uh, my story basically begins in Chicago, where I'm from originally. Huge Cubs fan, very important. Uh, but after college, I... Uh, had reconnected during college to my, my my Jewish heritage, my roots, and I actually went to Israel and served in the IDF. I served there for two years as a paratrooper, and actually part of my talk tonight is I, I served uh, for a significant amount of time on the northern border with Lebanon. Uh, so a lot of the things that are going on right there, I have personal experience with, knowing the terrain, et cetera. But after the Army, I came back to the States, moved to D.C., went to grad school, and was working in aerospace and defense consulting work, and then uh, got connected with the, as, as Jim, as you mentioned, with Israel's mission to the United Nations. Uh, Ambassador Danny Danone was looking for a new senior advisor and spokesman, and I threw my hat in the ring, was fortunate enough to uh, to have that position for about three years. I served under Danny, and then when he left in uh, uh, during COVID, so time is a flat circle in some respects, but he left in the summer of 2020, and then Gilad Erdan, who's the current ambassador as well, at the time, he came on as ambassador to the United Nations as well as the U.S., and I was fortunate enough to stay on with him for about a, a year and a few months. And then after three years total in that position, I moved with my now wife back to the D.C. area, uh, where I've been doing strategic communications work uh, for different consulting firms for, for part of my own business. And obviously, in the last few months, given my background uh, in the Army, as well as, as spokesman and senior advisor to the mission, I've been able to lend my voice here to help explain to a variety of different audiences uh, what's going on in Israel, the importance of understanding the context, the history. Not only, this is not just a, a story about Israel, but it's a story about the Jewish people. It's a story about uh, forces of right and wrong, of good and evil in the world. So there's, as Jim, as you mentioned, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of different players involved and different themes. Um, and, and, and different considerations that it's a very complicated situation. So I'm gonna try to tackle a few different elements of it. Uh, feel free to uh, you know jump in with any questions you have. I'm gonna try to talk a little bit about, as you mentioned, where we are right now, where Israel is right now as it relates to Gaza, and then a little bit later with, with Lebanon. Um, but just so everyone is, is caught up, we're here on Sunday, January 7th, and the war has been uh, being waged effectively for exactly three months. It started on October 7th, although it realistically, it actually began, <coughs> years, it began years before that. Um, Israel does not have a peace agreement with certainly any terrorist organization, but very few countries in the Middle East. And one of those, one of those organizations it does not have an agreement with, obviously, is the terror organization Hamas. So when people talk about a ceasefire now, as they have for a number of weeks, you have to keep in mind that on October 6th, there was a ceasefire. The previous conflict or operation in which Israel engaged Hamas was two years ago in 2021. And there was a ceasefire from the end of that conflict and that operation until October 7th, which Hamas broke in, in a horrific fashion. We just saw Robert blowing the shofar from the Nova, the site of the Nova festival where a massacre occurred, uh, also elsewhere in southern Israel. And so that sparked, obviously, a significant reaction from Israel. And this it became very clear very quickly 
that what Hamas had done was not just another quote unquote cycle of violence or round of operations that was going to be required by Israel. But actually, as President Netanyahu said on that day, October 7th, and then Israel declared on October 8th, it was a war. And holistically speaking, this is one front or one battle in the broader war, the broader conflict between Arab, the Arab world and Israel. Um, so that's kind of the, the higher arching context to consider what we're experiencing, what we're seeing right now. So from October 7th, initially Israel responded with not yet a ground invasion, but um, airstrikes, because that is first off uh, an immediate reaction that Israel is able to execute, targeting Hamas terrorists, their leaders, different command and control centers, things that can be targeted and and um, and fired upon from the air. In the meantime, given that this was going to be a war and not just another conflict, Israel's political and military leadership needed the time and the space, actually, which is one thing BBS for from Biden, the time and space to figure out, well, what would its next steps be? In previous operations, Israel had conducted effectively limited operations, meaning it was a very specific target that Israel wanted to achieve or objective, whether it was in 2014, the last time was a ground operation, trying to uh, uh, understand and destroy some of, more of Hamas's tunneling systems. Um, in 2008, it was to, to recapture captured Israeli soldiers and, and other reasons. But this was going to be a war ultimately with three objectives, as Bibi laid out, first to destroy Hamas and certainly to incapacitate its fighting capabilities. Two is to restore security and order to Israel's southern communities. And third is to rescue the hostages. And it, all, all those three things, A, B, and C, are not simple tasks. They require huge investments and amount of resources, both in manpower with troops as well as materiel. So it took some time for Israel to kind of essentially assemble its forces. They called up over 350,000 reservists. So just for people, I think your audience is very well informed, but just so for context, everyone knows, Israel is a very small country. Most of its military is uh, comprised of reservists. When I served, I was actually in the standing active army, and it's only about 20% of that army is combat combat uh, soldiers. The rest are in other, other non-combat roles. But the bulk of the army, when there is a war like now, are reservists, people who are between you know mid-20 to late 30s years of years of, years old, and they're called from their homes, from their families, from their jobs to go serve in the army. So Israel needed time essentially to amass the forces it needed to execute the strategy that we're now seeing. So for the first couple of weeks, that was phase one. Israel was getting ready to deploy its ground forces. President Biden visited the region as well. And then October 28th, Israel invaded Gaza, um, and it did it diff in a different manner than it has in, in, in operations in the past, because the objective was to essentially search, seek out, and destroy Hamas's, first off, their terrorists, their capabilities, and their weapons caches. Israel needs to effectively go throughout the Gaza Strip, and needs to pin pick out where it needs to uh, where it needed to deploy its forces in the most efficient use of time, because one thing Israel does not have in its favor is time. Like I mentioned, most of the reservists are integral to Israel's economy. Uh, you can't, Israel cannot have a lot of reservists in uniform for a long period of time. So it needs to be very efficient and quick in how it, how it uses its forces. But Israel bisected uh, the Gaza Strip, took out or turned north towards Gaza City, which was a command and control center of Hamas uh, for, for many years, for a couple of decades at this point. And then due to the significant uh, success thus far of the campaign, the military pressure brought to bear on Hamas, Hamas's leader in Gaza, a man named Yahya Sinwar, he was he basically um, started to use the hostages, of which there are about 240 hostages, as a bargaining chip. And trying to say, well, let hey, we'll we'll release some hostages now if you guys give us uh, a week's respite. And for every day after that, that you give us more hostages, we'll give you another day of essentially a short-term truce or ceasefire. And that was effective for about a week. Israel was successful in or retrieving uh, about uh, 80 or 82 hostages. Um, and these are, when I say hostages, these are obviously, as, as we well know at this point, civilians, primarily Israeli, a few Americans. There are also other foreign nationals who were who, who were captured by Hamas. Uh, most people are Jewish. Some are not Jewish. Some are actually Arab. Some are Muslim. Some are Thai. There's a lot of Thai workers in, in Israel. Um, but this precedent of releasing or exchanging hostages, and they were exchanged for about 240 or 250 Palestinian women and children, women and teenagers, effectively, but these were people who were convicted criminals. They weren't just snatched from their homes like Hamas did to the Israelis um, or other foreign nationals. 
but this precedent has been set for a number of years. I mean, unlike the United States, Israel often negotiates with terrorists. When I was serving, I served from 2010 to 2012. And in 2011, uh, most people are familiar with the name Gilad Shalit. He was a captured Israeli soldier. He was a corporal in the tank unit, and he was captured in 2006, held for about five years. And he was he was exchanged for over a thousand Hamas terrorists, convicted terrorists from Israeli prisons. One of those terrorists was a man named Yahya Sinwar, who I just mentioned, uh, who then led the attack on October 7th. So that was phase two. And then phase three was from late November um, uh, sorry, phase three was was an exchange of hostages. And now and, and these phases are not obviously very well defined necessarily, but phase four is our current operation right now since about late November, early December until the present day. Uh, and right now, Israel is then focusing more on its operations in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Khan Yunus is a town or a small city in the southern part that people may be familiar with the names right now. And it's important, A, because it's one of the most populated areas in the southern Gaza Strip. But more importantly, it is the birthplace of Sinwar. And moreover than that, it's where he is, his primary command and control center is, is we believe, well, they believe uh, is to be found. Reports actually came out earlier today. I just did some uh, double checking before getting this call this evening that Jerusalem Post reported that actually some of their Hamas's top leadership might even be in the central part of the Gaza Strip. Uh, and the strip is fairly small and narrow, but Israel essentially in the first and the second phase went north. And the fourth phase kind of turns south, so it controls both elements um, and essentially has a line that uh, unless you are given clearance by the IDF to cross as a civilian, you're not able to cross. So Israel controls both, both parts of the Gaza Strip. Um, but also as Israel now kind of its forces move closer into Khan Yunus, this is turning to an operation in which Israel is trying to really uh, root out, identify and find, again, Hamas's top leadership. Yahya Sinwar being the primary objective, but other individuals like Mohammed Daif, um, who's Israel's, oh, excuse me, Hamas's primary military chief in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and so in this part of the war, like I mentioned, we're three months to the day of October 7th, and a lot of reservists have been called up. So this part of the war is less heavy, uh, less intensive with ground forces, with massive ground forces. So you're starting to see reports of soldiers being given some leave, going back home, some R&R. &R. That's partly cycling them in and out. It's partly giving them reprieve to go home because believe that there'll be a uh, on another initiative, another um, offensive probably in a few months, perhaps in Gaza, perhaps even in the north, which I'll get to. So right now, Israel is in well in control or asserting control in the Gaza Strip. Um, and they are closing in, uh, we hope certainly, on Sinwar and his other leadership. Uh, but Hamas is still formidable for the most part in Gaza. It's been estimated that their forces number between, it's unclear certainly how you define someone who's a Hamas terrorist and someone who just happens to pick up a gun and fight for Hamas, but between about 15 and 20,000, maybe a few more um, Hamas terrorists. So if you want to really destroy Hamas's capabilities, you have to essentially kill a lot of bad guys. Uh, and more than that, you have to get after the people, Sinwar and other leadership, who are in these hundreds of miles of tunnels they've dug over the last 20 years. Because just for a quick background, Hamas was established in the late 80s. It's actually an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And it has established itself in Gaza. And then 2005, and it was part of the second intifada, to be honest, in parts in the early 2000s, was an internal war between the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank primarily and Hamas in Gaza. And in 2005, when Israel disengaged from Gaza, Hamas won a civil war that they fought with the Palestinian Authority a couple of years later. So they've been firmly in charge of the Gaza Strip for the better part of two decades. And, and Israel has not had any presence or occupation or anything like that in Gaza again since 2005. So Israel's thought they knew about uh, the extent of Hamas is called a metro because like all the subway systems, like a huge expanse of metro, this tunnel system underneath Gaza. But really, they're learning for the first time um, really how expansive it is, how much it's grown since 2014, the last time Israel was in Gaza. Um, so at this point, it's thought that Sinwar is in these tunnels, bunkered down, trying to assert control and his command uh, Hamas forces throughout Gaza, primarily in the southern part of the strip again. And he's likely surrounded by uh, a number of the hostages. Um, there are, I think, 129, 130 remaining hostages. I've seen publicized reports that it's believed about 106 are alive. 23 may no longer be alive. 
Um, I just want to note that I think a couple of days ago, Kfir Bibas was, uh, he was uh, nine months old when he was abducted. He just turned one year uh, in captivity a few a few days ago. Uh, so ultimately, Israel doesn't know as much as they would like to know about the hostage situation, particularly now because they are likely being uh, used as human shields by Hamas's leadership. Um, so that's that that's the Gaza front. Um, Jim, anything in particular you want me to focus on there before moving north to Lebanon? Do you can you give any sense? Have you talked to any of your friends who are fighting of what it's like going into the tunnels, or is that beyond the scope of of your connections there in Israel? Yeah, that's a little. Um, a lot of the guys that I've served with are actually in the north right now. Um, paratroopers are some paratrooper units serving in the south, uh, maybe more special forces units that's, at this point. A lot of my guys in the north, but in conversation with other friends I have in Israel, et cetera, um, it is the word that comes to mind is hellish. Um, it is a situation where I don't think any modern military has ever fought in before, in that it's a combat environment that is entirely urban. Um, it is above ground as well as subterranean. It's a situation where the enemy entirely owns the map, meaning when you're above ground, Israel is a very technologically advanced force, uh, military. And so it can use drones, it can use other ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance aircraft to map a battlefield, to take photos, videos, et cetera. And Israel's done that like any modern military, the United States included, has done of an enemy territory. But in this situation, Israel has no idea effectively beyond what's been able to, um, to uh, clear so far what the tunnel systems are like. And the last thing it wants to do, I think frankly any soldier wants to have to do is to go into these tunnels that are some, as we've seen actually are fairly large, uh, which is very telling in some ways to allow vehicles to go through. But most of them are just for single file passage to move you know, men or material or obviously hostages. And so it's an environment that would be completely dark. It would be completely on the enemy's, um, on, on their terrain and, and on their terms of how they engage. So the last thing you want to do is send troops in there. And that's why Israel has had and been trying to develop new techniques to uh, clear tunnels, to seal them off, but making sure, obviously, that there are no hostages inside. Um, but beyond that, the urban nature of the, of the, uh, of the battlefield it also makes it very, very difficult. Sadly and tragically, uh, a few weeks ago, three Israeli hostages were killed because by friendly fire, by the IDF, because a, a few different reasons I'm not going to get into, but essentially, um, you know, there's something called the fog of war, which is pervasive in every battle. And it's it's just um, unclear uh, messages, unclear uh, orders are given at times. And in this tragic situation, they were they were thought to be Hamas terrorists because you know not that they popped out they thought to be Hamas terrorists and the IDF accidentally shot them. Um, I just want to note before moving off this point that one of the parents, one of the mothers of the hostage that was killed, uh, she publicly said that she had no uh, remorse or, or or anger towards the IDF soldiers that unfortunately killed killed her child, um, knowing that ultimately again every. Uh, every ounce of blood that's shed on the Israeli as well as the Palestinian side is a responsibility of Hamas. Well, it was shared on a previous World Prayer Network call about how Hamas will have recording of people speaking Hebrew. So it makes the IDF soldier think that he's near a hostage and he's entrapped in there and he gets killed. And, and more than speaking Hebrew, they're, 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 they're attaching sound recording devices to stuffed animals, to other children's toys, as if to lure soldiers into what they think would be an innocent, innocuous room, like a child's room. But if we've, as we've learned, uh, Hamas has you know, stopped at no, um, nothing has prevented Hamas from booby trapping or trying to uh, wire explosives to any sort of situation, uh, children's rooms, schools, hospitals, et cetera. There is a move about, I don't know a lot of details about it, but attempt to try to persuade Egypt to create a 10-mile buffer that would allow an enormous number of, uh, of Palestinians from Gaza to be moved into this buffer zone to protect them, uh, get them out of a war zone, so that the IDF could complete its task of routing out Hamas. I don't know that that's even close to happening. I'm not sure. 
on that. Have you heard I, anything about that? I all? certainly have. I am, I'm not holding my breath. Uh, one thing that most people in the West don't really, um, haven't been aware necessarily is the, the people that hate the Palestinians perhaps most in the region are the other Arab societies and chief among that right now, particular with Sisi, uh, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the, the, the president um, of Egypt, uh, they certainly do not like the Palestinians. And so there's a, I mean, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, a a year ago, February, um, there was ref there's naturally there are refugees from every conflict and they and they fled across the border into Poland and then other countries. And there was no issue from from Polish authorities from Warsaw saying, no, close the border. Uh, there was no argument from, you know, no other country was saying, no, stop this flow of refugees, realizing that maybe one day they can go back to Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, wherever. But in this war with Israel and Hamas, immediately um, Egypt closed the border, the Rafa crossing from the Gaza Strip into Sinai. And for those who are aware of, of, of Middle Eastern history, of, of Israeli history, of Egyptian history, this is, wasn't much of a surprise, but it's very telling. It, it's very telling that they don't want, it's for a few reasons, one, probably to make Israel look bad in some ways too, because then suddenly uh, Israel is somehow responsible for an enemy population that started a war against it versus the other Arab states helping out their own brethren. But it's also because they don't want some of the elements, the terrorist elements that kind of have, 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 are, are pervasive throughout Palestinian society to then infiltrate into the Sinai Peninsula, which is fairly empty, but still um, it's like a wild west in the Sinai. And one of the reasons that Israel actually constructed a physical barrier, a wire fence essentially throughout the entire uh, the length of the Sinai border in the early the, the late 2000s, early 2010s was to stop um, smuggling and other arms and, and, and terrorist elements from going from Sinai into Israel. So I don't I'm not holding my breath on any sort of buffer zone for the Egyptians to allow Palestinians from Gaza in. Um, so but, you know, let's hope. But I'm not holding my breath. I don't know if it's 2018 or 2019. I can't remember. Uh, Joel Rosenberg arranged a small delegation. Of, we got to meet with uh, President al-Sisi of Egypt. He had never met with a group of evangelicals at that time. Mm -hmm. And we ended up meeting. It was supposed to be an hour, one hour meeting. We met for two hours. He's done a remarkable job, or at least he had till then. I haven't kept up on it more recently, but he did a remarkable job of, of tamping down the Muslim Brotherhood in that particular country. And we really commend him for doing that because it's, it's a pretty turbulent. It's a very, very difficult task he has. So I understand their hesitation. But as you say, that's pretty desolate territory right there in the Sinai. And it could become a buffer zone for a while. I, I would I would sure hope that would happen. We will wait and see on that one. Take us to the northern border. Yeah, uh, you you served there as a paratrooper in the northern border, so you know it well, Lebanon. Uh, in, in, in your comments, give a little bit of background. How is it that Hezbollah uh, from from Iran, funded by Iran, was able to just take over and destroy Lebanon, which has been a beautiful country, and is decimated now? And give a little bit of history on that if you can, and tell us what's happening on the northern border in this war. Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, so the history of Leb of Hezbollah, yes. Um, um, I, I should say also Hamas is a is a subsidiary of Iran as well. They give Hamas, I think about, I, I might have to check this before I got on. Uh, when I was at the UN, we, uh, under Ambassador Deneau, we, we regularly made this a point of our quarterly debates in the Security Council about the quote-unquote situation in the Middle East, which is basically an opportunity for all the countries to say, why is there no peace? Oh, it's because of Israel. Uh, but we we had a graphic and talked about how much Iran is funding these different terrorist organizations. I think it's $100 million a year they've been giving to Hamas. For Hezbollah, I believe the, the number is about nearly a billion dollars a year. So Hezbollah, which means party of God, um, uh, essentially was for it started off essentially to my understanding i'm not an expert in hezbollah but i do, I do know certainly the basics started off as primarily a social uh welfare organization as i understand it providing different needs to lebanese uh, muslims throughout the country and um i don't want to do it justice but essentially developed a you know a military capability and 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 some organizations like the European Union try to differentiate now between a military wing and a political wing of Hezbollah and also of Hamas. Essentially, it's one and the same. Hezbollah uh, is led by a man named Hassan Nasrallah, and they th there's always a competition in 
the Arab world, and it's an overgeneralization by saying the Arab world, because Israel has peace with five different Arab countries right now, Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, Bahrain, and, and Morocco. And part of the reason October 7th happened because Israel and Saudi Arabia were making very strong progress towards normalization. Might have happened in 2023 if October 7th didn't happen. Uh, I still believe it will happen at some point, but it's dependent in some ways on how Israel conducts itself in Gaza and elsewhere. Conversation for another time. But Hezbollah, uh, for the last couple decades, has been the largest, the most, the strongest military power in Lebanon. And I say that advisedly because there is a Lebanese army, but Hezbollah is stronger. And a number of years ago, I'm gonna get this wrong, but mid 2010s or so, late 2010s, Hezbollah entered Lebanese politics and actually has some seats in its parliament. And you're right, Jim. As, as I understand it, uh, Beirut in particular used to be known as like the Paris of the Middle East. Hasn't been that way since the early to uh, early 1980s when there was a civil war in Lebanon, essentially between um, uh, Muslims, uh, Shia, Sunni Muslims, as well as Christians. Um, it, it, Lebanon essentially is a factional or confessional country. There's it, it's it, there's been a sense there hasn't been a census there in in decades, in part because the governing structure is made up depend on how many um, uh, how big the population is of each group. But regardless, for Hezbollah's purposes. There's been an ongoing competition within the Arab world on who is leading the vanguard against the Zionist entity, against Israel. Right now, that's Hamas having conducted October 7th. But Hezbollah, for a long time, was the leader in this regard. Uh, not only in the 80s, but also there was a war fought in 2006 called the Second Lebanon War between Israel and, Le and, and Hezbollah. And, the, and that war lasted 34 days. And so we think about, and it ended largely because A, uh, really because of political pressure from the United States, from the Bush administration at the time. But when we think about how Israel, the U.S.'s relations right now with the Biden administration, Israel's been conducting this war for nearly three months, which is significant. Uh, and so, you know, the administration, I, I, I knocked them for a number of things, but in this regard, they have given Israel the time that needs to conduct its operation. But with Hezbollah, the end of 2006 the, saw the passing of what's called res, uh, UN Resolution 1701, and the establishment of UNIFIL, U-N-I-F-I-L, the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon, which is supposed to be a provide a, a, a physical presence and a buffer between Israel in the south and its border, along what's called the Blue Line, and Hezbollah north of that. And Hezbollah is supposed to not be able to cross about five or 10 kilometers um, uh, into a territory five, five or 10 kilometers away from Israel's border. They've been flaunting that for a number of years and saw this at the UN. Oftentimes we spoke to UNFL, UNFL leadership. We spoke to the Secretary General and other individuals saying uh, UNFL is failing its objective. Hezbollah is going to the border uh, with, with Israel near the fence at times. They're establishing different posts uh, in homes that are you can see from the border. You can see you know villages. Um, this area is pretty well compact. Um, Interesting villages and, and, and Hezbollah has command centers there. They have operational centers there you know, a couple of kilometers, if I'm closer to the border with, with, with Israel. So right now, if there was not a war in, in Gaza, there would be a war between Israel and Hezbollah and Lebanon. Uh, the number, the amount of activity, cross-border fire, primarily from Lebanon, but Israel certainly responding, is the highest level it's, it's been since 2006. Of course, if there wasn't a war in Gaza, there wouldn't be this kind of activity because things would be quiet on the northern border. And things were largely quiet when I served there as well. The action so-called was more uh, down around Gaza. But it's thought, there's a thinking that there will be, there could be a third Lebanon war. Of course, if there is, let's hope and pray that it's, it's the last Lebanon war. Um, and there have been over 500, nearly 600, I think, attacks uh, between Hezbollah and Israel. About, about 150 Hezbollah operatives have been killed. Um, and, and other terrorist organizations as well. I want to note as well that Hamas has, has a, has um has a presence in southern Lebanon in Lebanon as well, and Hezbollah more generally, as I mentioned, the Iran connection too. During the Syrian civil war in the early 2010s, Iran told Hezbollah to go fight for Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So Hezbollah is very much a wholly owned subsidiary of Iran. So if Iran says jump, Hassan Nasrallah and Hezbollah essentially say how high. So the reason there hasn't been a full blown war just yet is. No one really wants it. Certainly Israel does not want it at this point, does not want to fight a multi-front war. Two is Nasrallah knows that it will probably lose that war, although it can inflict a lot of damage on Israel. Hamas is 
uh, you know, a threat to Israel's southern communities, but Hezbollah is a threat to all of Israel. And Hezbollah makes Hezbollah's capabilities dwarf those of Hamas. Before the war, Hamas has was thought to have about 15 or 20,000 rockets, primarily rudimentary ones, in its arsenal. Uh, Hezbollah has over 10 times that, between 150 and 200,000 rockets. The numbers obviously are not, you know, very clear, many of which are guided, many of which can we reach all the way down south towards a lot. So right now there is a simmering conflict or a simmering war on the northern border. Um, and, you know, Israel, there, there's actually talk in the press today that supposedly Bibi is making a political case, political case for why there should be a war in Lebanon. And, and, and you know, the Biden administration certainly does not want that. Israel doesn't want that necessarily, but the time might come where it hit, you know, war is brought to it. Um, and we'll say one final thing as well about this, uh, very note noteworthy. A few days ago on January 3rd, a man named Saleh al-Aruri was assassinated along with six other Hamas uh, uh, commanders and terrorists, essentially. And this man is not Hezbollah, he's Hamas. I mentioned that Hamas has a presence in Lebanon. Well, Aruri was a deputy chief under Ismail Haniya, who's the head of Leban uh, head of Hamas, excuse me. A lot of different names going on, I realize. But Haniya and other individuals of Hamas leadership are hanging out in, in Doha, Qatar. Uh, they have net worth north of a billion, about three or four billion dollars. Uh, so Hamas leadership is is absolutely fine while their while people essentially start wars and get killed in, in Gaza. But just to say about Aruri, he was just, he was killed. Israel has not claimed responsibility. Um, so if they if they claim responsibility, we can't point the finger and say definitively they did it. But certainly it's in Israel's interest to take out Aruri, showing that Israel, the gloves are off with this war, that Israel will go to whatever lengths it needs to to eliminate Hamas's leadership. As I mentioned, that's their first objective, one of their objectives, the first one. Um, and in response, you know, it, there, there's a question of what would Nasrallah do? Again, Hamas has been seen as a vanguard in the fight against the Zionist entity. Will Hezbollah then also take up the leadership because it's also internal politics between the different Arab uh, Arab, Arab factions here? Um, but effectively, he moved the fighters a couple of climbers away from the border, showing a retreat in some ways, or uh, not a retreat, but trying to have cooler heads prevail. He gave a speech in which he said, you know, Hezbollah is ready to respond. Of course, Israel also said that Israel is ready to respond if Hezbollah does something. But then just yesterday, there were 40 rockets fired from Hezbollah into Israel. They actually caused some significant damage in the northern mountain areas. So right now, things are simmering on a low boil. If you imagine your stove, it's kind of keeping things warm, uh, can easily be dialed up at a moment's notice. And I said earlier that a lot of guys I know who are, being, who are, who are coming off the front lines in Gaza or even off the front lines in the north uh, are being told, well, sit tight, go back to your job, go back home for a little bit, but you might be recalled in a few months' time. Wow. I, want, I want you to all just realize what, what Israel has been through. I'm going to repeat a statistic to all of you that I've given a number of times on here. Israel only occupies one-third of one percent of all the land in the Middle East. One-third of one percent of all land in the Middle East. So 99.7 percent is controlled by Arab Muslims or, or, or other Muslims around the region. And yet here they are having to fight for that little piece of land just to survive. Uh, and many of you have been to Israel and you love going to Israel. We all love going to Israel. And we enjoy our air-conditioned buses and it's peaceful and wonderful. But one of my friends went there in 1957. He got there and he couldn't even go into the old city of, of Jerusalem. It was under siege right then. He had to fly home without even getting to see at Jerusalem. Even when we went in 1981, first time I went was 1981, I was shocked to see burnout trucks and tanks along the roads left over from the 1973 war. I said, why wouldn't you get those out of there? And, and here's what we don't understand. He's, they said, we, we can't waste the fuel to move those. That was the answer given me. Now, maybe in a sense they were memorials, but they, they didn't have, they, they were spread so thin trying to defend themselves and build a nation, a great nation, but they couldn't spend time hauling these units away. That was left over from the 73 uh, war that had taken place. And then we were in a kibbutz in the north, uh, maybe 15 miles from Lebanon. I'm not sure how close we were. We woke in the morning hearing the sounds that we could hear the, the shelling going on. And, and, and they weren't in war. That's the way they have to live. I said, this is normal? I mean, it was scary to me. They said, oh, oh yeah, we live with this all the time. So this is what Israel has been through on a constant basis. I guess the question I have uh, for you, Daniel, does, uh, is Israel 
does they, do they have the military bandwidth? I, I know they're strong and their military is the best of the best, but do they have the bandwidth to handle all they're doing in Gaza and, and then take on uh, Hezbollah with maybe 200,000 guided missiles that are in place there at the same time, knowing that, that, that obviously Syria, who knows what Iran would do or Houthis, but that they have the bandwidth to take that on because it seems like it could be triggered at any time, full bore in the nor and northern uh, border. Yeah, very true. And that's a, so the short answer is yes. And largely that's because they might not have had it on October 8th because a campaign against Hezbollah is going to rely heavily, at least at the beginning, on air, air power. Um, you know, it, it takes so much time for an infantryman walking or on at the back of a tank to advance north and to try to take out different rocket rocket launch sites. But there was a comment made a few years ago, I'm forgetting uh, when exactly, but the head of Israel's Air Force essentially let slip that if, um, if Hezbollah were to start a war, uh, Israel could flatten it in a, in a matter of a few minutes. I mean, that's obviously being a little hyperbolic, but still the point is the greatest threat that Hezbollah poses are those rockets and missiles. And if it unleashes, and an Iron Dome is a very effective and capable defense system, but it is not designed to take down those rockets or missiles. They're, they're, it, it, I, I, I used to do a lot of work with uh, missile defense. I can get into this for a long time, but essentially it's a different, it's a lower tier system and those rockets and missiles would be too, too, in terms of altitude, too high and too fast for Iron Dome to intercept. So it can take out some, but not, but not many. Um, so the beginning war would be an aerial campaign. And a lot of that work is no longer, not no longer needed, but in Gaza, it's moving much more towards a gr uh, pure ground campaign right now, because like I mentioned uh, surrounding Khan Yunus and trying to find out, fi um, uh, you know, trying to uh, go after Hamas leadership in these tunnels. Not so much you can do from the air, you have to do from the ground. So right now, if Israel has to turn north, uh, it has a lot of targets already pre pre-programmed, um, spent since 2006, you know, 17 years trying to collect intelligence on where Hezbollah could be locating its rocket and missile launch sites from. So Israel will certainly have the bandwidth. Um, and and I just want to wrap this up on, on just two quick notes. One is, um, in many ways, Israel has a bandwidth because it has to. It can't, it can't afford not to have that bandwidth. The biggest fear that Israelis had on October 7th, aside from the horrific nature of the massacre itself, was what's going to go on in Lebanon? What's going to happen in Syria? What's going to happen with Hamas or other terrorist cells in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank? What's going to happen with Iran? Are we facing a multi-front war that we haven't faced for decades since 1973, effectively? Uh, and so that was the biggest existential fear that Israel faced. But we've seen that Hezbollah is not eager to start a war in many ways because Iran isn't. Because if, you, if if Hezbollah starts a war with Israel, if there is a war between Hezbollah and Israel, uh, Hezbollah will be decimated, and Iran and that will take Iran's biggest threat um, off the table to Israel. And 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 you know, is Iran keeps Hezbollah in many ways as a protection against Israel. Don't come and attack me. Don't go and attack my nuclear sites, etc. Because I will unleash one hundred fifty thousand rockets at you. Um, and the last thing I'll say too is. You started getting at this about, um, you know, why Israel occupies a third of a percent of land in the Middle East. And ultimately, the, the broadest message I want to give to to your viewers is the reason that there is continued conflict between and it has been between Israel and its neighbors is because its neighbors, whether it's the Palestinians or the Hez or Hezbollah, not everyone, mind you, like the Abraham Accords, countries are different and, and countries are changing. But by and large, the reason there is conflict is because the Arab um, the populations of these societies think that Jews do not have a right or a claim to the land. They think they are colonizers from Europe or elsewhere, uh, and they are here today and they'll be gone tomorrow. And ultimately, if they can be made to realize, I'm not just saying through military might, but they can be made to realize that the Jews have an ancient connection to the land, and moreover, they have nowhere else to go, then there can be peace. But if you cannot disabuse them of that notion, then why would they stop fighting you. And, and they look at what happened in Algeria with kicking the French out in the 60s. They think the same thing uh, can be done to the Jews. Um, and Nasrallah said something as much in his speech after Aruri was killed. I have a, the quote here. It's obviously translated. I saw this, that he said essentially, quote, every Israeli has another passport and their suitcase is ready to depart when they find out that Israel is not the land of milk and honey. So 
Jews have nowhere else to go outside the land of Israel. Uh, thankfully, we live comfortably in the United States and other countries in the world. The point being is Israelis have nowhere else to go. It's the homeland of the Jewish people. Uh, and until the rest of the region realizes that, Israel's going to have to keep fighting for its own survival. And Israel, folks, if you hear people making statements on Facebook um, that uh, the indigenous people were the Palestinians, the Jews came in and took over, there are no, there's no indigenous people that land except the Jews. The Canaanites do not exist. Now, they were there before, but they, they, they don't exist. Now, the Philistines do not exist. The Jebusites, which control Jerusalem, do not exist. Uh, so there is no people claim to that land except the people who are there currently. And the Jews, once again, don't occupy the land. They own the land. God said it was theirs. He said a lot more land is going to be theirs, according to Scripture. Uh, but so stand firmly when people make those kind of bizarre uh, uh, statements. We talked about this on a previous show, so I won't go into it longer. Daniel, I'm so appreciative of you. I've got one more question. It's just burning. I, I'm not militarily trained. So this may show my ignorance, and then the issue of diplomacy may be, may be a little shortcoming on my part there. But uh, I, I've often wondered why does Israel just preemptively take out the missiles in the north? Is it because just world reaction would be too strong, or is Joe Biden blocking it, or is Israel saying we got to just hold tight and wait till they fire a bunch at us and maybe, maybe God forbid, kill a lot of our people? I, I wonder what's what's held them from firing two hundred thousand missiles, sophisticated guided missiles. And other than God himself, I can't come up with an explanation why they haven't already done that. But is Israel going to have to wait until they're struck by some of those sophisticated missiles and, and, and not go in preemptively and, and, and take them out and neutralize them, as we would say in military terms? Help me understand that reality. Sure. So we could think of the situation right now Israel finds itself in vis-a-vis -vis Hezbollah, similar to uh, May 1967, where... It was facing a likely war with Egypt. Uh, it's already fought two wars with Egypt, once in 48, during the War of Independence, and, and the second in 1956. And in 1967, in May and then June, Nasser had extremely bellicose rhetoric against Israel. Uh, there were also at that time a UN peacekeeping force in the Sinai that he expelled and that he blockaded the Straits of Tehran, T-I-R-A-N, not Tehran, Iran's Tehran, but uh, which was in the south of the Red Sea. Um, which cut off Israel's commercial shipping lanes, which is essentially causes Belai for war. So Israel faced a situation where they could wait for war to come to them and face, again, a multi-front war fought on the enemy's terms, or they could strike preemptively knowing that war is already coming, and they, by striking preemptively, gain the upper hand. Of course, we know the story. Uh, in 30 minutes, it took out the, the Egyptian Air Force, and six days later, it, it defeated three uh, conventional armies um, of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. So Israel is kind of facing a similar situation right now, uh, not necessarily, necessarily in the scale, but certainly in the kind of the dynamic. Hezbollah is not launching its missiles because Iran is telling them not to, or not telling them to do so. And Iran's telling, not telling them to do so because if they do, if Hezbollah launches its rockets, there will be a war, and Hezbollah will not left be left not be left standing at the end of that war, perhaps at all, but certainly in the current capability. And uh, Hezbollah is Iran's biggest chip um, against Israel to defend itself if Israel needs to take action to its own hands to prevent Iran from developing nuclear capabilities. Because if if Iran's developing nuclear capabilities and Israel tries to strike Iran directly, I'm not talking about different access, uh, uh, espionage or sabotage from the Mossad, but actually, like in 1981 with Iraq, like in 2007 with Syria, we're taking out those nuclear reactors. If Israel launches a strike against Iran's nuclear capabilities, Iran could say, okay, Hezbollah, fire all your missiles and destroy Israel effectively. Uh, so it's, it's, it's preventing Hezbollah from firing its missiles for that reason, primarily. Israel, on its, uh, for its part, it's not launching against Hezbollah, mainly because it's still focused in the South. Also, there is a lot of political pressure and a question of if Hezbollah's not looking to start a war, why should we start a war with Hezbollah? It, even if Israel strikes first, which getting back to the 1967 scenario or analogy, it will have to strike first. A war with Hezbollah will have to see Israel strike first because Hezbollah can easily fire tens of thousands of its rockets before, is, before um, the Israeli Air Force can effectively respond and do significant damage to Israel's civilian infrastructure.
So that's why Israel needs to respond first. It's very much kind of a who blinks first scenario. But if Israel finds itself in a situation that, that war is imminent, I believe it will uh, strike first because, again, it has to. You have been so thorough. I so appreciate what you have shared with us tonight. Uh, we're going to go right to a video clip. And Daniel, if if time permits, I've kept you way longer than we planned on. If you're able to stay with us and give a little comment after these two videos, folks, you're about to see two remarkable videos. We weren't planning to show them. We had other things programmed for tonight. My wife showed them to me uh, as we were literally driving to church this morning. I said, oh, my goodness, you've got to change and show this. This will give you a reliving of, of, of October the 7th, which we need to do periodically so we don't forget about it. Watch this. Uh, yeah, I think this. Robert was recording or and our Dominique's crew was there and visited just a couple of days ago. Watch this video. Just want to introduce myself again. My name is Dean Elston. I'm the spokesperson for the Israel police. My job is to come up with words and Maya and I always talk about it. It's funny because we relive October 7th over and over again since October 7th. And I have to come up with new words. And I have to come up with new ways because not everybody is Israeli and not everybody's Jewish. And they come here and they see. And we say the word Hasbara in, in Israel. And I want to throw that word out of the window somewhere because what we've been doing since October 7th hasn't been Hasbara. We've been convincing people. We've had to stand in front of houses where people were kidnapped, where people woke up on Saturday morning and their entire world flipped upside down. Hamas terrorists came inside, they grabbed them and they pulled them back into Gaza. Parents lost their kids on October 7th. Children lost their fathers, their mothers. I don't even know how to begin where, where everything started or how everything happened. The first three months, the first 90 days, really, they just blended together. Time has no meaning anymore. I've had to bring the press to Shula, which is the body collection site, where we split it between the IDF and police, and the IDF were identifying soldiers, and the police were identifying the civilians. And a lot of people don't realize that the civilians weren't coming in in full body bags. The civilians were coming in in pieces, small bags. Because we would get a head with an axe in it. We would get an arm that was completely shredded. We would get bodies that were charged so badly that we could only identify them by putting it in a CT scan. And we would see two spines melded together of a parent that was holding a toddler. That's what happened on October 7th. My job, Maya's job, all of our jobs has been to convince the world since October 7th what took place here. But why? Why? Hamas came in with their own cameras to film what they did. Hamas's first public statement after October 7th was saying this is just a rehearsal. And yet here we are 90 days after. I can't give you the smell that was in the air. The smell that got stuck in our noses and we couldn't breathe. It was stuck in our brain. We had to take off our clothes before we went into our homes. I can't pass to the fear of the parents that were on the other side of this kibbutz knowing their kids were right here and what was happening to them. I wish I could. I wish, because I want to give you all the tools that, that, that I can possibly give for you guys to do your job better. We all have a responsibility here. Emily behind me, I know her brother. I've known him since I made Aliyah to Israel. This was so personal. Because no matter if you know someone from this kibbutz or not, you were affected by October 7th. We were all affected by October 7th. My family in America was affected by October 7th because they stayed up all night looking through the messages, looking at the news. They couldn't leave their house. The attack happened here, they felt it there. They didn't want to leave their homes there in America. It is beyond me how when we brought the international media to Shura base and we had to open up trailers that had bodies inside, real people, I had to say, wake up, hello, these are real people. Everyone's chattering, laughing, this, that, some are eating. I'm like, how, how? 
These are real people inside of there. And what do they say? Dean, can you move? Can you open up the second one? We want to get more of this. A better angle. Dean, can you show us which body was sexually assaulted? What do you mean, show you which body? Open up the bag, show us. What? The, the level of ignorance, the level of just disconnect from the people who were coming here. And they were here and they saw it in the beginning first days when there were bodies all over the place and we were walking them through here and they would find a body piece or they would smell the smell or they would go inside and there'd be blood splatter everywhere because Zaka didn't clean it. And they were running outside, throwing up. They couldn't handle it. What happened? Agencies sent their reporters back abroad. I asked them, guys, why aren't you showing what you're seeing? That's the point of you being here. No, Dean, it doesn't pass the breakfast test. Hmm. What the hell is a breakfast test? If the people watching the news are eating their breakfast and they can't keep eating after we show them what we watch, after we show them what we air, we're not airing it. So how in the hell, how in the world is anyone supposed to stand with us? Why is no one from the international media talking about the Arab Muslims that were killed on October 7th, the Christians that were killed on October 7th, those abducted that weren't even Israeli, that were at the Nova Music Festival. No one's speaking about them. Why? We all have a purpose in this war. We have our guys in Gaza right now. They're keeping the promise of never again. At the Washington rally, there was a woman, she was holding up a, a girl, actually, she was holding up a sign, two pictures. Maybe some of you guys saw it. One was a, a older woman. And she said, this is my grandmother. She's a Holocaust survivor. She's my hero. Underneath was a picture of her brother in IDF uniform. She said, this is my new hero. He's in Gaza right now. My grandmother said never again. My brother is keeping that promise of never again. Never again is right now. And maybe our soldiers in Gaza are fighting in combat boots, but you guys are no less important. You guys have such a critical role here because you need to wake the world up. Emily is waiting to get out of Gaza. Her mom was just here right now. We were talking, we were talking about her daughter in there and she, she, doesn't, she doesn't even like talking about it because she can't think of what's happening to her daughter right now in Gaza. And that's just her. This is one kibbutz. This is one of 22 kibbutzim. This doesn't include the music festival grounds where over 300, almost 400 people died, were slaughtered. Not died, slaughtered there. Where 17 police officers died because they were trying to save as many lives as possible. They didn't care about their families back home. They were just trying to get these kids out of there. It doesn't count the 59 police officers in total. They gave their lives. They did whatever it took so that others can live. I can speak for days. I really can. About the bodies in Shula, about the media, about the people coming here, about the families that were here. I met with all kinds of backlash of team, but this is resistance. Okay, what did a 10 month old baby do in its 10 month of living to be victim to the Hamas attacks in the name of resistance. A 10 month old baby. What did the women do at the music festival to have their breasts cut off and the men have their genitals cut off and have it all videotaped? Have their bodies burned alive? Have pregnant women cut open? Guys, the things that happen here are so sick. This is not a Netflix show and it's not a cable news show. None of that. No, this is real life. When you're walking around here, it needs to feel like Auschwitz. You, you shouldn't be able to breathe because what happened here, there's blood in this floor right now. That's right. People ran for their lives. I don't like comparing the Holocaust, but this was something. People were burned alive. Children were killed. There's 129 people right now waiting to be rescued inside of Gaza. There's four more people that we assume are most likely dead that have been waiting in there for years. This war, it's not a war of religion and it's not 
Jews against Palestinians or Israelis against Palestinians. This is the world, humanity, against terrorism. Hamas came after all of us on October 7th. And for me and Maya, it's still October 7th. It really is. We bring groups here multiple times a day. We are so emotionally attached to the families, to the justice that needs to be served. And that's why you guys are here. Because you have the responsibility now to take everything you've seen. I can't give you the feelings and I can't give you all the words and all the explanations and everything that w they went through. But when I saw a father in Mephasim, not too far from here, on the, the surveillance cameras inside of his house, when the terrorists were infiltrating, and he took his two boys into the bomb shelter, and the terrorists came around the corner and threw the grenade inside of the bomb shelter, and you see the father jump on top of the grenade, I can't give you that feeling. I can't give you the feeling of the two boys that then, that then ran outside, and their face are completely covered in their father's blood, and they run into their kitchen, and they're sitting in their kitchen, and the terrorist walks inside and opens the refrigerator and starts drinking cola in front of the kids telling them to shut up. How do I explain that? How do I tell the 18 to 24 in America that <clears throat> this, this has nothing to do with whatever propaganda Hamas instilled into you from your TikTok videos and this and that. This was hate and this was evil. Those boys ran out of that house. But when the footage kept rolling, we saw the mother return and see her. she saw her husband on the floor in pieces. One story, one kibbutz, one house. We'll stay here for days if it was up to me. The border fence from Gaza is right behind this, this house right here. That's the fence. And Hamas came in from the air. And they came in from the land with pickup trucks, with 50 caliber machine guns mounted onto the, the pickup trucks. And the bullets are this big. As they were shooting, they were taking out body pieces off of people. And when the first responders came in the beginning hours to try to rescue lives, and when Zaka came and, and, and everybody started trying to collect the wounded and the dead, they were victim too. Because underneath these bodies were pressure plates. So that when the first responders come to try to save a life, to try to bring them to the hospital or collect a corpse, they went with them. When the bodies got to Shula, every day, there was another alert that they had, everyone had to evacuate and the bomb disposal unit had to go inside because they shoved a grenade inside of bodies. If you guys haven't gotten it yet by, by what I said, I don't know what's gonna get it to you, but you guys aren't alone. I'm going to be with you for any questions you have, for anything you have. We're all one family. We're all in this together. And if I'm going to tell you one thing, that this, Emily's going to come home. Amen. Hamas is going to be eliminated. Amen. And the world is going to know the meaning of Ami Yisrael Chai. Amen. Amen. That us coming together, that you guys, it's uh, my understanding, uh, what, a, what a jolting uh, video. It's my understanding that I believe uh, Dominic Berman uh, took that, and she's going to be on in a moment. That, that video may be from her. She'll be on just a moment, and then we're going to go to a two-minute video. This is very two minutes, and I believe Robert, Robert Wenger, who uh, sounds the shofar for us, this is a video he took, and so he'll be on in a moment. We're going to play this two-minute video. We're going to ask Daniel Flesh. Uh, for some responses, and then we'll go to what I understand are the two people who took this video. Uh, let's go to the two-minute video now. They come in by air with gliders, buckeyes. By land, <clears throat> excuse me, by land with pickup trucks that had machine guns glued on them, set on automats, and with motorbikes and they just start shooting, rampaging, screaming in Arabic. They came in with guns, RPGs, grenades, bombs, and they just start shooting. And people are hiding inside their mamas, inside their bomb shelters, just grasping for the hope that they'll survive. And we'll talk a little further about what a mamad is 
But a mamad is supposed to protect you from bombs, from missiles, not from terrorists who are standing outside your doorstep. If that wasn't enough, they later set a lot of the houses on fire. And when I tell you that they came in very well prepared, they brought gasoline tanks and tires with them from Gaza, and they set the houses on fire. People were either shot and then burned, or burned alive, or would inhale the smoke from the fire, step outside usually through the window of the mamad, where they'll be met with a terrorist who murders them or kidnaps them. That's the reality. And even though we're 90 days in, we're gonna go inside. But in a sense, here in Kfar Aza and in the nearby area, time stands still. You're gonna see the Sukkot still standing. <clears throat> we're almost three months after, we're 90 days in, and the Sukkot are still standing. This is not a movie scene. It's not a movie set, it's not AI. It's not something that we built so people will come and see it. This is the reality. This is what happened here. Time stands still here. And we also see the signs for the elections of Phil Lipstein. And we'll talk about him. But he was the head of the regional council, an amazing man that was murdered here, just outside his house. And it was about to be re-election time. And you still see the, the, the signs for his elections. He's no longer here, but his signs are. Again, time stands still. Daniel, uh, these are really hard to watch. Uh, hard to watch for all of us. I cannot imagine what, what goes through you as one who's been there, served in the IDF, and who is Jewish. Daniel, some thoughts from your heart. <sighs> Frankly, I don't have many words right now. Um, that's actually some of the better videos I've seen of people explaining what's going on. Um, in, in the first few days after October 7th, people were describing Hamas, what they did, uh, as animals. But frankly, animals don't act that way. Um, what you saw or what, you know, what happened um, is the, the, the police officer had a right that this is, this is, you know, I mentioned that the, the, you know, the conflict with Israel, so-called, is because the Arabs, by and large, have not accepted that the Jews have a, a connection with the land of Israel and they're not going anywhere. But more broadly than that, what we saw on October 7th was um, one part of a broader war, which is good versus evil. And it's it's uh, that was evil on October 7th. And he's right that to to liken it to the to the Holocaust, not in scale but an intent um and that's a very touchy subject as well for a lot of people but I, it's something that I, I believe is true um but this is something that and, and we've seen also in in the united states um it's a difficult it's not a difficult time to be a jew but it's a time where we kind of always have our head in a swivel these days um and the reaction you know his his point was really hamas wanted to the difference between the nazis and hamas in some ways the Nazis tried to hide their crimes. Hamas broadcast them. And yet you still have people in the West and elsewhere in the world, but I would say care most about the West, who want to deny it, explain it away, say that Israel's lying, what have you. Um, and that indicates something much broader than this being a, a war between Israel and Hamas or, or the different proxy wars and the politics of the Middle East, um, or even about anti-Semitism. This is a much broader, bigger thing about forces of evil and illiberalism against forces of liberalism in the West. So this is in many ways a defining moment of all our times. Um, you know, 9-11 obviously was a big moment for in, in American history and showing that these forces are still out there in the world. And this is a new moment in that in that ongoing conflict. Uh, but he's also, last thing I'll say is he's right. For those of us who um, have family in Israel who are Israeli, who are Jewish, who have served in the army, um, any sort of connection with Israel. It's it, it might be 2024 on the calendar, but still 2023. Um, and the, the most important thing is, and one of the reasons, Jim, I was going to say if I couldn't stay on for those videos was to watch them after the fact, because I think we have to bear witness. We have to bear witness and we cannot smell it, but we can see it. So important for each of our circles to to share these messages with those who uh who we can uh, particularly those who might think it's happening over there far away no it's not 
No, it's not. A lot of the rallies in our country, in Washington, D.C., in New York, around the country, they may say they're pro-Palestinian in many regards, but the truth is, by and large, they are anti-Israel, they're anti-Semitic. And we know from history, not just modern history, but medieval history as well, and even uh, going before that, that whenever anti-Semitism takes root in a society, that society ultimately crumbles. So this is a battle for our times, not just happening over there, but happening here as well. Well, I'm so appreciative of you, uh, you being on. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.